0: Today I am very excited because we are going to talk about one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. Like this is right up there near the top and uh, I get to talk to you about it today and share with you what it is that it teaches me and how it impacts my life, and I hope that you find some value in it as well. So let's go back about 4,000 years ago, about 7,500 miles away from here to the land of Hebron. Let me hear you say Hebron this morning. Back in Hebron, there were two people who were married to each other. Their names were Rebecca and Isaac. And Rebecca and Isaac were trying to have kids, and they were struggling with infertility. And so Isaac prayed to God and asked God to help in the midst of their infertility, and God heard Isaac's prayer and blessed Rebecca, not once, but two times with twins. And she had twins, and the twins she felt moving inside her, and it wasn't uh, the most pleasant experience. To give you an idea of how much she did not enjoy it, she said, if this is the way it is to be, then why go on living? Now I asked my wife, who has been pregnant not once, but twice, what she thought of Rebecca's words, and her comment was, "Mm, that's a bit extreme. But I can see how you got that, Rebecca. (laughs) As time went by, Rebecca eventually gave birth first to the, to the oldest, which was named Esau, and the youngest, which was named Jacob. On the way out, Jacob was holding Esau's heel, and they named the first one Esau, which means rough one, and Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. So they were born, they named them, and then about 20 years later when they were grown up, they started expressing their own interests as to who they were. Jacob loved being a home buddy. He loved to live in the house, loved to do stuff around the house, whereas Esau was this polar opposite. He loved to get out in the great outdoors, he loved to hunt game, he was just out there always happy if he was hunting, and that's who he was. Now, Isaac had more in common with Esau, Rebecca had more in common with Jacob, and so as you can imagine, they quickly adopted favorites, which, to all the kids here today, your parents don't play favorites, you are loved equally by them. Rebecca and Isaac, not the best parents. So. <laughs> There's a story that unfolds here where Jacob is waiting for Esau to return from a hunt. And the way the Bible describes it is he says, one day when Jacob was cooking a stew. Now, what most people reading in English today don't know is that this was actually a Hebrew idiom back in its day. And it's essentially him cooking up a plan. And so the way the Hebrew is written, it's like while he's literally cooking a stew, he's also figuratively, metaphorically hatching a plan before Esau because he wants something from Esau. Specifically, we read Esau came in from hunting famished. And so we have this scene that unfolds where Esau comes in. He's like, I am starving, Jacob. Let me have some of that red stuff, that red stew. And Jacob Decides to stir the pot a little bit. And he says to, to Esau, he's like very casually, um, not until you sell me the rights you own for being firstborn. Because back in Jacob and Esau's day, there was this injustice in the fact that if you were born first, you got the overwhelming majority of your parents' inheritance. And so Jacob is there stirring the pot, literally and figuratively, and saying to Esau, I'll give you some food, even though you're hungry only if you give me this vast sum of money that you are entitled to. Esau says, here I am, ravenous for food. What good is my birthright to me now? To which Jacob says, I don't care. Swear to me first that you will give me my birthright. So Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright. Only then did Jacob give Esau some bread and the lentil stew. He didn't say, let me warm you up a little bit. He said, nope, nothing until you promise me this. Esau then ate and drank, then got up and left. And the narrator in the book of Genesis says, this is how little Esau cared or valued his birthright. Shortly thereafter, we read this story about Rebecca and Isaac, and then it shifts back to Esau. Esau marries two different women. Back in biblical times, it's the thing that people did. They were two Hittite women. The first was named Judith, and the second was named Bazimeth. Let me hear you say Bazimath this morning. I pronounce it twice in front of you to confuse you. That's what I do. So he marries Judith and Basimoth, and Isaac and Rebekah see this, and they are filled with bitterness because they wanted Esau to marry one of their own people. Now, if you think that this is unfair, you have to go back to the story of Esau's grandfather, a man named Abraham, who was so convinced that his descendants needed to marry their own people that he literally grabbed his servant by the genitals and said, swear to me on your kid's life that you will bring back a bride for my son from my own people. That's a story that's in scripture and it's not often a memory verse. Meanwhile, several years later, after this has passed, after he's married these two women, we read that Isaac is getting old and he is becoming blind and we read also that he is on his deathbed. And thank goodness that we have a paradox animation department that can help us visualize this very realistically as Isaac ends up on his deathbed, right? As he is there, he calls Esau nearby, and he begins to speak to Esau. But what we later find out is that Rebecca is listening in to this conversation. But she can't just stand there, right? So she has to be hiding behind something as Isaac is talking to Esau. I like when I picture this story, I picture that there's a couch and she's hiding behind the couch, real sneaky like, right? And so she's listening in on this conversation between Isaac and Esau, in which Isaac says, As you can see, Esau, I am an, uh, so old that I could die at any time. Go out and hunt and bring me back some food. Make it for me, and then I will give you my special blessing before I die. Esau, I imagine, is filled with honor and yet terror and grief, all of these things, and so he goes out to the hunt very smoothly and goes to find some game. Now, Rebecca has heard all this, so she calls her favorite son, Jacob, inside, and she hides behind the couch with him, and she says, hey, I've got a plan. Go get some goats outside, and I want you to go get the goats and then bring them to me because we're going to trick your father, my husband. And she says, You then take what it is that you bring back to me. I'm going to make a stew. You take that to your father so that he will give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob looks at his mom, who's about to deceive her husband, and says, Well, mom, you know, I don't know about this. Uh, Esau's really hairy, and I'm very smooth-skinned. To which Rebecca says, Quiet, child, don't worry about that. Do as I say, go fetch the goats. So Jacob sneaks around the house, sneaks around the sleeping Isaac, there he goes. He gets to the goats, kills the goats, turns around, brings the dead goats back past the sleeping Isaac. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) And then while it doesn't record what Jacob says once he brings the dead goats to Rebecca, I like to imagine that he says, hey mom, here are the dead goats you asked me to get to manipulate your blind husband and also steal from your other son. They're here. So Rebecca gets the goats, She makes a delicious stew. She gives it to Isaac, I'm sorry, not Isaac, to Jacob. And Jacob then says, okay, what do I need to do next? And she's like, okay, those goats that you just killed, I'm gonna make into some clothes for you so that you have hair on your hands and your arms. And then I want you to go put on Esau's clothes so that we can trick your father into blessing you. So she makes clothes from these freshly dead goats. She puts them on at Jacob. He goes to Esau's room, sneaks around once again. He gets to Esau's room, and once he's there, he's like, okay, I'm going to put on the hair. I'm going to put on all of Esau's clothes. And this man that was Jacob all of a sudden looks exactly like Esau, or as it's animated today, there he is. Hairy Esau for all to see and be tricked by. So Jacob comes in, and he's got this stew, and he walks up to his dying father, and he says, Father, trying to imitate Esau's voice, right? And immediately Isaac is like very suspicious. He says, Which of my sons are you? And of course, Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. To which Isaac responds, "Mm, How did you find the meat so quickly and bring it here to me? It seems like you should be out longer than that. To which Jacob says to his father, oh, well, it was Yahweh God, your God, who let things turn out in my favor, to which I picture God saying, whoa, how did I get dragged into this? This wasn't part of the plan. I didn't ask to be part of this. Now, Isaac then says something else that's suspicious. He says, come closer then and let me touch you so I can tell if you are really Esau or not. So Jacob gets in closer next to Isaac, gets right next to Isaac, and it's here there's this moment of vulnerability where Isaac, this dying, blind father, says, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are Esau's. And he asks him, are you really Esau? To which Jacob says, I am. And then he says, all right, well, why don't you come closer, Esau then and kiss me? And so with a kiss of betrayal, Jacob leans in very close and kisses his father. And it's here that Isaac finally lets go of his suspicions. And it says, when Isaac smelled Esau's scent on his clothes, then he gave Jacob his blessing. So Jacob, dressed as Esau, got everything he wanted and basically stole from his older brother. Now, it's here that Jacob leaves, gets out of the house, and he's like, Oh, I better not be seen by Esau. And as he leaves, wouldn't you know it, Esau is coming in with a bowl of stew from the fresh hunt that he just returned from. He gets there, and he says to his father, Hello, father, Isaac, sit up and eat the tasty dish I have prepared for you. To which Isaac responds by saying, Who are you? And Esau says, I am your firstborn son, Esau. To which Isaac says, then who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And Esau probably is thinking to himself, ah, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Dad? To which Isaac says, I ate it just before you came in from hunting, and I blessed that person. Now, let's imagine this is a movie. I picture the bowl that Esau is holding just dropping to the floor in slow motion, much like this <laughs> boom dramatic music plays, Right? And it's here that Isaac says, look, I know that you think like I could undo all this, but the rules are the rules. Now that the blessing must remain on him, there's no undoing this. To which Esau cries in agony, father, bless me too. To which Isaac says, I have nothing else to give. Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau is standing there and he is so mad. To which I would ask you, what is it that you would say if this was you? Because Esau says something that I fully identify with, even if I don't fully understand what it is. He screams to the heavens, you know what? He isn't called heel grabber for nothing. Makes sense if your brother's named Jacob, but here we are. So we then read Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing that Isaac had given him, to which I would ask you, can anyone here blame Esau? What has he done wrong at this point? Well, he was hungry a long time ago and tricked by Jacob. And uh, other than that, he did what his dad said. It's kind of it, right? And so it's here when Isaac is sleeping that that Esau says something out loud that he thinks is only said to himself. He says, it won't be long before we will be mourning Isaac. I will wait until then and then I will kill Jacob. And Esau leaves the room. But he forgot about one thing or one person. Rebecca is still hiding behind the couch. She heard him say this, so she calls her favorite son back, and she says, Jacob, uh, uh, your brother, he wants to murder you. And Jacob's like, oh, no, he's going to win because he's tougher than me, to which Rebecca says, I want you to get out of here. I want you to go far away to my brother's land in Haran, and I want you to go there for a few days until Esau calms down. Just a few days. And while you're out there, why don't you find a wife? You know, put that on your to-do list. Take your mind off all of this. She goes on to say, when his anger turns away from you and he forgets what you did to him, I will send word for you to return. And why don't you come back too with a wife from our own people? Rebecca then goes to Isaac and says, let me explain something. Jacob's got to go. I want Jacob to not marry a Hittite woman like Esau because Rebecca has her go-to lie, which is if he does this, well then, my life will not be worth living. <laughs> Isaac then says, okay, bring Jacob here. We assume that Jacob is going to be reprimanded by his father because, remember, it wasn't too long ago he tricked and lied to his father over and over again. But instead, Isaac, the only reprimand he gives is, make sure that you do not marry a Canaanite woman. Other than that, he blesses Jacob and says, I will see you later, and Jacob leaves the tent. Now, it's here that Esau comes back. And Esau begins to speak to his parents, and he discovers something. And this was something that, even though I've read this story so many times before, was new to me this week. He speaks to his parents, and he talks to them about, I assume he says, Mom, Dad, that was pretty messed up what happened there. Mom, completely sold me out, completely sold out your husband. I don't know how you sleep at night, but I'm here still. And it's here that I assume that they say, for the very first time, you know what, your dad and I were mad at you for marrying Hittite women. And Esau learns about this for the first time in Scripture. He says he learns that his parents did not like his Canaanite wives. And he didn't know anything about it until this point. So Esau then goes to his dad's half-brother Ishmael and marries his daughter, a woman named Mahalath, and brings her into the family as a way to say, I will obey you going forward. Now this is one of those moments where the morals don't necessarily translate to today's day and age. But this is how he solved it back then, and it was considered moral and upright back when this story was written. Now, it's here that the story shifts to Jacob. And remember when Rebecca said, I want you to stay out in Haran for a few days? Well, a few days turned into about 20 years. And over the next 20 years, a lot happens in Jacob's life. He has a vision of a ladder and angels going up and down it. He falls in love with a woman named Rachel, but he's tricked by his uncle into marrying her older sister named Leah. He has to work them for 14 years to earn Leah and Rachel's hand. They come with handmaidens, which is a very nice way to say concubines. And he has then 13 kids with them, and he gets a lot of camels as well. This is who Jacob is over the next 20 years. And then all of a sudden he has the sense that God is calling him back to the place that he grew up. And so Jacob packs up all of his family and heads back to the land of Hebron. And as he is getting closer, Jacob's anxiety begins to spike because he remembers that Esau wants to kill him. And he says, I wonder if Esau's like forgotten about that whole trickery, stealing birthright thing. And so he calls some messengers, some servants to him, and he says, hey, I want you to go ahead and go talk to Esau, my brother. And I want you to know something. I feel very different about him now than I did 20 years ago. Go say to the honorable Esau, which is the nicest thing Jacob has said to this point, up until this point, about his brother Esau. He then tells them that, Jake, I want you to tell Esau, I'm coming, I'll be here soon with my family. Um, I, I, I don't mean you no harm, I don't want to come back and claim anything from you. I'm just here because I feel like God has called me to come back. So these messengers go and they're very fast, so they go quickly, and then they come back to Jacob and they say, oh, We found Esau. To which Jacob says, That's great, what did he say? And the messengers say, well, he didn't say much other than this. Tell Jacob I'm coming with 400 riders, which in that day and age is the equivalent of saying I'm coming with 400 tanks. So Jacob starts to panic. He starts to freak out. And so he prays to God and says, God, the only way I'm getting out of this is if you deliver me from the hands of my angry brother. And it's important for us to pause right here and say, oh, at this point, Jacob believes that the only way he will survive is with a divine miracle. He doesn't, can't imagine another way in which this coast plays and, and unfolds in front of him unless God intervenes and says, Esau, hey, I know you're mad, I understand why, but please just don't hurt Jacob. So Jacob prays to God, asks for a miracle, and then Jacob says, you know what? All this wealth that I've accumulated with all these, these uh, animals, I, these are no good to me if I'm dead. So why don't I give them to Esau? So he decides to send Esau some goats, which, not the best choice <laughs> if you're Jacob bringing up the goats again, right? He doesn't just send him two goats, though. He sends him 220 goats. Yes, I counted each of those goats that are on the screen right now because accuracy is important. So 220 goats, 220 sheep, over 20 different cows and 10 bulls and 35 donkeys. Right? (laughs) I called my brother Scott and I asked him, what would you do if I sent you 35 donkeys unannounced to your house? He said, I would mail all of their excrement to you one by one until you came and picked them up. (laughs) But this meant something different back then apparently. So he sends all of these animals (laughs) ahead of him And he tells his messengers, say to Esau, these animals all belong to your brother Jacob, who is offering them as a gift to your honor. Jacob himself is behind us. He's behind this mountain of gifts. And Jacob is thinking to himself, maybe I can buy him off. Maybe the miracle that God's going to provide is my wealth and my money will protect me. And so after sending that ahead, Jacob goes to sleep that night and then wakes up the next day and there on the horizon is his brother Esau. Jacob walks very slowly toward Esau. So slowly, in fact, that he takes a step and he bows down before Esau. He wakes, or stands up, takes another step, bows down again. Stands up, takes another step, bows down again. He bows seven times on the way to go greet Esau. And as he is going very slowly toward his brother, Esau runs toward him, and he embraces him. And he not only embraces him, we read that he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And in their embrace, they wept. Why? Because they are healthy men who are in touch with their feelings, right? These guys wept as they held each other for the first time, well, probably ever. And here they are in the midst of this world between camels and men, and they're all just crying. Everyone's like, what, this is, this is very different than I expected. And as they are crying, and you can picture the tears starting to dry, Esau says, looks behind Jacob and says, uh, who are all these people? To which Jacob says, well, these are my wives, my concubines, and my 13 kids. To which Esau says, oh, it's such a delight to meet you. And then Esau says, what, what was the meaning of all the gifts that you sent me? Why did you send those to me? And while Jacob doesn't really answer, uh, Esau's like, what's the point? You trying to buy me off? He says, I have more than enough, Jacob. I have more than enough. Keep what is yours. Like, I don't need it. You think that money matters that much to me? And Jacob's trying to stammer through all this thing because all he's viewed is that money's the most important thing, more important than even his brother. And Esau says, I have more than enough. Now Jacob insists over and over again that Esau take it, and Esau reluctantly accepts the gift. But then Esau hears Jacob say like, hey, I can't go directly back into Hebron, do some logistical things. I'm gonna have to go around, but I will eventually join you back there uh, in a few days' time. To which Esau says, here, take some of my men with you because I want to make sure that you're safe. And it's here that Jacob asks his brother a question that is rather stunning. He says, why should you be so kind to me? To which the answer is, who knows? There's no real logical reason here because the last we saw Esau, he was feeling something very different toward Jacob. And what's really interesting to me about this question is this is the last words that spoken between them in all of scripture. Is Jacob's question of grace ringing around the story when he says why should you be so kind to me? And if I could imagine an answer from Esau, I imagine Esau saying to Jacob, well, because Jacob, I forgave you. I forgave you a long time ago. And what's interesting is I grew up as a Christian And the word forgiveness is a big word in Christianity, right? Like, hey, have you been saved? You need to ask for forgiveness of your sins. And when I asked about what it means for our sins to be forgiven, the answer I got back over and over again was that I needed to name my sins each and every night before God. I had to confess my sins before God and say, God, will you please forgive me in order for God to forgive me? Which made me very scared that Jesus might come back while I was sinning, because that's a moral quandary I didn't understand as a 13-year-old, right? And yet, what does that actually teach us? It teaches us as Christians that for God to forgive me, I need to confess these sins that I sinned against God. Well, what is a confession to God? It's basically us saying to God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did this, God. I'm sorry I did this. Will you please forgive me? And most Christian theology today basically says, unless you say you're sorry to God, God will not forgive you. But then there's this story here in Genesis, in which I have to ask, there's no sorry here, so why is it that forgiveness is given? And what Esau teaches all of us today, and I think Christians could really use this lesson from Esau, is that forgiveness never requires an apology. Imagine if Esau sat around waiting for an apology from Jacob, what his life might be like. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how on earth does forgiveness work without an apology? It makes no sense, to which I would say one of my favorite definitions in the dictionary, yes, I have favorites of those too, is the word forgiveness from the New Oxford American Dictionary. They just nailed this definition. The definition in this dictionary is to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake. This requires no apology. It's up to you how much you want to forgive by letting go of your anger when somebody wrongs you. This was brilliantly captured by the great Anne Lamott who once wrote, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. That's what it means to not forgive someone. So here's Jacob saying, how on earth, why are you so kind to me? To which Esau says, oh, I forgave you a long time ago. And because Esau was able to forgive and let go of his anger, he got to live his life for 20 years. Think about Esau didn't wake up every morning saying, like, Jacob. Now, there was probably a few weeks there where he did, and that's fine, right? It's okay to be angry. But after 20 years, he's probably stopped thinking about Jacob. So much so, imagine 12 years after Jacob left. Esau's probably sitting around a fire with his camping, his hiking buddies, his, his hunting buddies, and they're all like, man, what Jacob did to you so long ago was messed up. And he said, you know, I haven't thought about that for three months now. It's kind of remarkable because I used to think about it every day. And because Esau chose to forgive, he got to live his life for 20 years, and when you read the story in Scripture, it's obvious to me that Esau is one happy guy. When Esau got screwed in this story, Right? And when you look back at how angry he was to this scene where all of a sudden he's giving basically everything he has to Jacob free of, or with his free will, it teaches us that we have this idea that forgiveness is this, some grand gesture in which we have to like invite our enemies over for dinner. That's not what it is. Esau forgave Jacob whether Jacob showed up or not. And that progression is not one that happens overnight. It's a journey of 20 years in which Esau asked himself every day, can I be less angry today than I was yesterday? If you are struggling with forgiveness, this is the question to ask yourself. This is the question where you can wake up and you can say like, man, I'm angry with that guy. Did Can I be a little less angry today than I was yesterday? And you try, and most days you usually can. Some days you can't that's fine, you're a human being. But this question will guide you on the path to forgiveness and it's a path that I have found is helped by asking this question on a regular basis. Now, this brings us to more parts of the story that we can look at because there's more and more layers that are worth unfolding. When we look at this, you have to say, "I, I don't think that Craig really likes Jacob in this story, to which I would say, you are right. But to his credit, Jacob shows up right to his credit Jacob shows up Jacob could have stayed in the land of his father-in-law and been out there and just been like you know I'm happy Esau's mad I haven't heard from my mother there's no reason to go back but then he sensed that God was calling him to go back and I believe that God was calling him to go back to make amends with his brother that he wronged so long ago and so Jacob follows what he believes is the call of God. He goes all the way back to Hebron. And the night before he meets Esau, there's a very famous story in scripture that is often told that Jacob wrestles with an angel or Jacob wrestled with God. Now, I have a hard time with this, this story because in this story, Jacob wins the wrestling match. So I'm like, how can this be God if Jacob wins the wrestling match? Like, that seems impossible, right? If it's an angel, it still seems unlikely to me that Jacob wins. Not only that, but Jacob is the, uh, he's not the strong twin of the two, and yet he's winning wrestling matches with supernatural beings. And I've always had this problem with this part of the story until I came across a commentary this week that talked about the process of translating the story into English today. And this commentary read this, tradition is called the mysterious stranger an angel or God in human form. But the Hebrew in this passage is almost completely lacking in proper names. Each line of dialogue begins, and he said, without any indication of who is speaking. A dizzying construction which gives the reader the idea that Jacob and the other are mere images of one another. Jacob, in effect, is wrestling with himself, or figuratively wrestling with his twin Esau, whom he is about to confront. And all of a sudden, this story makes so much more sense to me because he's probably saying the night before, I should just leave. There's no reason to do this. God's telling me I need to forgive this person. I'm out. It's dangerous. It's a bad idea. And he wants to leave. And he is wrestling with himself as he is trying to figure out if he's going to show up and make amends or chicken out and go home. And yet he shows up the next day in great humility. And wouldn't you know it, That miracle that he thought would require God's intervention was given to him full stop. He received the full blessing of God because he had this idea, well, God's going to have to intervene for me to live. And wouldn't you know it? It happened. And I tell you this because I have read all of scripture. I have preached from every corner of this book. And I have to tell you, when I look at the great miracles of God, there are few miracles better than this one. Because I have found in my life that the greatest miracles do not require anything supernatural to occur. The idea that you can be be less angry and let go of your anger towards someone who has truly wronged you is what I would describe as a miracle and the greatest work of God. The best testimony you have is about how God helped you to be a less angry person. Which brings us to Christianity. Christianity. There's this idea within Christianity that we have to be forgiven by God for our sins. And I'm I'm all for it. I think there's some real healthy theological ideas there. But what I have found is when I grew up in parts of the church, I found that the predominant question was, have you asked God to forgive your sins? Well, this question has some value, I think a much better question to ask is, who have you forgiven? Because if you haven't forgiven anyone, are you really following God? And then we have to ask the next question, which is, who have you asked to forgive you? And if you're saying to yourself, oh, I've never asked anyone to forgive me, I I don't think we can be friends. (laughs) I think it's impossible, because I will mess up, and I will screw up, and I will need forgiveness. So these questions have become much more interesting with each day of my life, and I have found them to be deeply spiritual in the way that we answer them a commitment every day to being less angry than we were yesterday, that's a spiritual journey. And you may be thinking to yourself like, well, Craig, I mean, I've been through some bad stuff and I don't know if I can forgive this person to which I would say, I know, it's hard. And it's okay to be angry for a time. However, may I direct you to the story of Esau and Jacob and may I remind you, that there was nothing special about Esau. He didn't get visions. He didn't see miracles. He just liked to hunt. And he didn't have anything going for him, right? His brother stabbed him in the back. His mother did too. His dad, like, didn't chew out his brother when he should have. All these things, it all worked against him. And he faced some really unforgivable things. And he has no superpowers. He can't change water into wine. Like, what's the big deal with Esau? There's nothing he can do. Except he's really good at forgiving people, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And my friends, when you read this story, my hope is that when you read it, you will say to yourself, oh, just like Esau, I can learn to forgive. I am capable of great forgiveness. My friends, may you ask for forgiveness for others who you have wronged. And may you be people of great forgiveness, just like Esau, in your life, in all that you encounter. Amen. Amen.